Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Lagore. Welcome to the Sky Watcher What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Sky Watcher USA YouTube channel. We cover everything from what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks. And of course, at the end of the month, we have a special guest on to talk about their specialty in the field of astronomy. Um, before we bring our uh, guest in today, a couple little announcements I want to bring up. Number one, uh, sorry about last week's episode. Um, I have kids. One of them was sick, and it just clearly was not going to happen to meet the webcast. Uh, so I still work for Skywatcher. I saw the comments. Yes, I'm still here. Um, yeah, so... Anyway, all is good. We'll redo that episode in the future, so don't worry too much about that. We'll recap that. And then the other thing I want to talk about is our big uh, What's Up webcast, webcast-a-thon extreme um, that's coming up on April 8th. Uh, this is a big day-long webcast. We'll have various vendors on. We're going to have four different live panels um, and this is on April 8th. And then of course that night you can hang out with me and maybe a couple friends, um, for a virtual star party, uh, that night. Um, we will be promoting more, uh, information about this as we get a little bit closer, but that is on April 8th. So, uh, keep your eyes out for that. Now, um, today I'm actually joined by Ryan Goodson of New Moon Telescopes. I'm going to bring Ryan in here. Uh, Good morning, Brian. Or I guess it's afternoon for you, pretty much, on the East Coast there. But uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so for those of you who might not be familiar with Ryan, Ryan is the owner of New Moon Telescopes, which is a custom Dobsonian manufacturer. They're, uh, you're in Virginia, right? Correct. Virginia. Virginia. Um, and Ryan makes some absolutely beautiful telescopes. Um, basically, anything you can dream up and get optics for, Ryan can basically build it. So um, if you want to know more about it, you can go over to uh, the New Moon Telescope website. But um, we've got Ryan here this morning to talk a little shop about what he does. Um, but Ryan, I start off the same thing with every guest, and that's basically um, how did you get started in astronomy well that's interesting i was uh i was an adult and i had just gotten married we lived in kansas and astronomy was nowhere in my world let's see i would have been 22 years old i believe i was going to play golf one morning and uh it was dusk and i looked over out of the corner of my eye i saw a bright flash and as i'm driving the flash got brighter and brighter and uh make a long story short, turns out it was a fireball. You know, I'd seen a meteor, right? I mean, the lowest one I've ever seen to this date. And uh, I was completely intrigued. And from that point on, I mean, almost immediately, I dropped every other hobby, no more golf, sold the golf clubs. And uh, I bought my first telescope, a big 12-inch uh, Orion telescope. And and the rest is history. So we're, because... Um, if people actually take a look at the new moon uh, scopes, they are quite a work of art um, because of the woodworking and uh, metalwork that's done on them. Were you uh, like uh, a craftsman before that? Were you good with wood and all that? Not so much, Kevin. Not oh. so much at all. 
Um, that came later. In fact, I made a mirror long before I ever built the structure for a telescope. So I made several mirrors and uh, finally I had to put them in something. So uh, that's when the woodworking started. I got into furniture building and uh, lots of lots of hours practicing and upgrading my shop and tools and everything else. And it was it was quite some time between the first time I ever cut wood to the first time I ever sold a telescope, um, probably about eight years. But uh, but yeah, that wasn't my background. I was in retail management. I used to manage furniture stores all over the uh U.S. from Oklahoma, Missouri, Kansas, up to New York. And uh, yeah, I quit it all to be a telescope maker. That's pretty neat, though. Um, you know, some of the other people I've met who've done telescopes normally were, you know, they were already good with wood or something like that. But it's pretty neat that you, it kind of snowballed into what it is, you know, after the fact. So that's kind of neat that it's it's turned into it. Um, what... Um, what was the first telescope that you actually built? Gosh, the first, let's not get this wrong. Um, the first one with a structure was actually a little six inch F6. Um, it would have been an old uh, Celestron optic. And I built just a really crude wooden plywood box. And uh, that was my first structure. And I used plumbing parts for the focuser. I mean, pretty much everything was uh, kind of rigged. And then that progressed to an eight inch F6, which I did the mirror for, and then a 12 and a half inch F5, which I did the mirror for. And uh, I made a few of those. And so after I got to 12 and a half inches, I made three or four before I felt like, oh, okay, that one looks okay. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't, none of the early ones looked good at all. But uh, it looked okay, and it, it gave good views, so that was what was important. And, uh, yeah, that was it. Um, so I didn't know you had actually done a little bit of optical work, but for people who are watching, if they wanted to get started in making their own mirrors, especially now where equipment's hard to get, uh, the price of glass, you know, even if you wanted to build your own daub, has skyrocketed at this point. But mm -hmm. if someone wanted to build their own scope is there any like tips you would give someone who wanted to make their own mirror absolutely um the springfield telescope makers uh they're located in vermont you can get all the information online I, i'm not sure if they do anything virtual at this point but uh you know they're, they're, they were a huge influence with me um without the springfield telescope makers i would have never got into building telescopes as far as i have um they they were crucial uh, in understanding optics, understanding some of the engineering aspects behind the structure itself. Um, I would drive to Vermont once a month and just hang out with these guys. Some of the guys were 85, 90 years old. And then some of the guys were younger and some of the women, there were a lot of women there, just so much knowledge. Um, so I can't rec uh, recommend Springfield telescope makers enough. They, they were fantastic. And th they'll, they'll point you in the right direction from, where you can get your glass, you can still get kits, um, little eight inch kits. And uh, they're not completely outrageous yet as far as price goes, but they have increased. They're about double what they were when I bought mine, so. Yeah, I know, uh, I think Newport Glass has some kits um, and then there's other places like United Optics that sell mirror blanks, large mirror blanks um, right. and stuff like that. But um, so, 
you you got your first scope you started messing with some stuff at what point were you like i want to do you know a, i know we've talked before and you've been at neef and stuff like that and a lot of the stuff you actually show um and i'm sure a lot of your clientele are the larger aperture uh scopes probably 16 plus inch scopes um when did you start uh moving into that caliber of instrument let's see this is our as far as new moon telescopes the company goes this is our 10-year anniversary so it would have been um really year one of uh having a business new moon telescopes that's the year i went up to 26 inches i remember that scope pretty well and uh, everything changes. Anything over 20 inches is twice as difficult as anything under. So it gets pretty difficult, as you know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it would have been about 10 years ago when I got into the larger scopes. And, uh, you know, to this day, probably our best-selling telescope is a 16-inch F4. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a pretty, pretty sweet size scope that tends to draw a lot of attention. But we sell a lot of 12 and a halfs, a few eights, um, but we do sell a lot of 20s and above. The 16F4 is a really cool size, especially because of um, it's some as a mass production company, we make a 16 4.5, which you need like a, a milk crate at Zenith for something like that. But in these days of you know, I want my feet on the ground, but I still want aperture. I think a 16 F4 is nearly perfect for that, but it gets overshadowed by all these, you know, really fancy, fast, you know, sub F4 optics. But right. a 16 F4, your feet are on the ground. You actually have to kind of lean over with a 16 F4. But um, for a lot of people who are looking for a big scope or to dip their foot in the big scope uh, league, and keep your feet on the ground a 16 f4 is perfect actually just about a perfect size it is just about a perfect size it's one of my favorite sizes for sure and um i have a 16 inch i don't use it much anymore obviously because i've got the 28 inch that's done now thanks to ryan ryan actually did my mirror cell and the bearings for my 28 inch so he makes components as well um but a 16 is you know for those of you who have like a 10 inch or a 12 inch, a 16 is you are playing in the big boy pool at that point. Um, there's a substantial jump from a 12 inch as far as galaxies go and uh, stuff like that. But um, I'm sure Ryan could, you've played with, I mean, you, what's, well, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. What's cool about you is. I'm sure because you build each telescope by hand, you also test them. So that also gives you this spectrum of, you know, here's an eight inch, here's a 16, here's a 20, here's a 20. You've, you've seen the, the wide range of what different apertures are going to give you. So. Yes, that's correct. And uh, I think what you're saying about a 16 inch is pretty much dead on. So many people live in suburban or city areas now, and they don't have an opportunity to get to a dark sky site as much as they might like. Um, you know, when you're in suburbia or the city, a 16 inch isn't going to look a lot different than a 28 inch or a 36 inch. I mean, you're, you've got the light pollution you're, you're dealing with. So a 16 inch is going to take you deep. 
and the planets are going to be phenomenal. I think that's one of the big misnomers about uh, Newtonians is they don't give you a good planetary image and especially the faster ones, you know, the planetary images are never good. I think what people deal with and may not even realize it is, you know, these larger telescopes are extremely sensitive to seeing conditions. Mm -hmm. I mean, very sensitive. I'm and going uh, through that. I knew it when I got my yes. 28, but it, it's another level than I, what I thought. So it's eye opening, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, my personal scope is a 20 inch F 3.3. And if I'm just using it here at my house, the number of nights that it would be better than a 16 inch might be two or three. I mean, that's just the truth because of light pollution and the seeing. Now, if you're going to a dark sky site, you know, you still have to deal with seeing, but it's dark and you can look at all the galaxies and the nebula and everything else and go deep. But when you're wanting to look at planetary, double stars, um, things like that, you need really good seeing conditions. And unless you live in Florida or maybe Arizona, you know, it's uh, it's not ideal most of the time. And so uh, I don't know if anybody's ever looked at the Clear Sky Clock website. Use but uh, I, time, so. <laughs> yes, I cannot recommend that enough. That's they're more accurate than meteorologists. I don't know how he could just write a logarithm and be so accurate. But it's just a bunch is. of dumb squares is what it is. I know, right? <laughs> I, I, I live by those squares. And uh, yeah, so on the nights of that dark blue good seeing, man, it doesn't matter what I've got going on. I'm, I'm looking through a telescope that night. Yeah, I've, I've got a fair amount of right back here is the garage and there's racks of more than I should have. Um, <laughs> I have a six inch APO refractor. It throws down an image that rivals most on most nights. However, the nights that you think back when it's like, what's burned into your mind. It's most of the time for me, it's something that's got some serious aperture behind it where the scene did click in. And that's one of those things where people are like, well, it's only good when the seeing is good. Well, let me tell you, when the seeing is good, there's no freaking argument with a really good mirror. Uh, my 16-inch one night, I saw detail on Ganymede um, around Jupiter. I've never been able to do it again. It was just right. one of those nights where everything clicked. But, I mean, I've never been able to duplicate that with anything else. So, um, but, yeah, it's it's those nights where... They are few and far between, but you could probably count them on one hand. But those nights are the nights that you go back and tell your friends like, we saw this. It was amazing. You know, blah, blah, blah. So um, having a, a big scope to back you up is is awesome, especially when all the stuff clicks into gear. So 100 percent. I agree. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of people watching and these are recorded. So more people watching um, in the future. But when you approach a scope a custom scope is there something um you know when someone calls you up and they're like i want to do a scope is there some thoughts that you give them for considerations yeah there's typically uh whenever somebody first approaches me about building a custom scope and i say custom you know we have a list of sizes offered on the website but none of them are the same. So if I built you a 16 inch F4 and then I built Timmy and Diane a 16 inch F4, those dimensions might be slightly different by a quarter of an inch or an eighth of an inch, a half an inch. Um, every one is completely unique, but there will be a back and forth between me and the potential client 
typically a handful or dozens of emails, um, phone calls, questions about what their needs are, what their expectations might be. And uh, I think that that usually works out the best whenever a lot of questions are asked, because oftentimes people might go in it thinking, you know, I want a 20 inch telescope. There's no question in my mind. I, I, I want it. And, but then when it comes down to, well, can I lift 60 pounds? You know, how often am I going to be able to get it and move away? Sometimes those things will change over the course of a, a month or so whenever they're contemplating the telescope. So yeah, there's quite a bit of back and forth that goes on. It's mostly me asking questions. Um, but anytime they have questions, I'll do my best to answer them. And, you know, it's, I'm no expert. I'm, it's all subjective. It's based on my experience of building all these telescopes and looking through telescopes. So there's, you know, frequently we'll, we might have different opinions, me and the customer. And so they win when it comes to that, you know, mm. their opinion is going to prevail and I'll, I'll do what they ask. So, uh, and especially, you know, some people might want something a little extra custom on their telescope. You know, they may, we're doing a couple eight inch F3s right now. That's not wow. an extremely common sized telescope. And in order to make it a comfortable viewing height, we had to come up with a collapsible stool to put underneath the scope. So, you know, there's things that kind of snowball like that. So, uh, yes. There is a question floating here. Do you require your clients to provide the optics or do you have a dedicated supplier? Yeah, we do have a dedicated supplier. Um, we use Optique Fulham, which is uh, Norman Fulham out of Quebec. Um, that's our that's our go-to optician. Um, we will make telescopes. We've made you know dozens of telescopes around Zambudos and Lockwoods um, light holder there in California. Um, so we'll use any optician that the client wants. But I've got a pretty good relationship. I consider Norman a very close friend. And, you know, when you're exchanging hundreds of thousands of dollars, you really want somebody that you can really rely on and you trust. Mm -hmm. um, and Norman has kind of become that for me. So so when somebody wants just a premium high-end telescope, Norman can do them all the way down to, you know, F3, everything in between. Um, we can customize the thickness of the primary mirror. Uh, there's a number of things. But Norman Fulham is who I use for my uh, go-to optics. Awesome. Um, one of the unique things about, and this kind of segues into back to the big scopes, but Norman has come up with a really unique, uh, mirror production called, um, uh, Technofusion is what mm -hmm. he calls them. And that's what's in your, the big guys on your right. website. Um, I've, I've only seen one of them. And I think that was the 36 inch that you've made. Um, is there, have you made other ones or have you made anything yes. bigger than the 36 as well? Or I have not gone bigger than the 36. Um, we have made several around techno fusions. Um, they're a very unique clientele. They're, they're, uh, they're about double the cost of a monolithic blank. So uh, it's somebody who is extremely serious. They know exactly what they want and they know the advantages of that techno fusion style um, mirror. So we haven't made many, um, less than half a dozen, I think. But uh, yeah, anything like up to 24 inches and over, um, he'll he'll recommend the techno fusion if somebody wants to consider that. I, I think yours is a, a special blank, also, right? It's You've got a, like a it's a cellular. It was made by Dream. It was the first twenty eight Dream ever made, and oh wow, project that's that cool. 
yeah, the project that it was going to get used for fell through. So I, I have it. So, but yeah, it's, um, for those who aren't familiar with the techno fusion mirrors, cause you, you, they are, are quite rare actually. It's, it's like a fused, you know, there's a top plate and then they use all these little glass support columns and a bottom plate and then they put it in a kiln and then they fuse it all together. Um, so it's an extremely rigid system, but you basically have to engineer the the mirror at that point. It's not just like, oh, here it is, and boop. So um, let me see if I can actually find uh, Norman Fulham. Sorry, Ryan, didn't mean to uh, commandeer you real quick. Uh, no, not at all. Let me drag this up, because a couple people want to know what the heck Technofusions are. Um I've looked at them several times just because I've seen your, your, the big 36, but I'm also weird like that. So these are techno fusion <laughs> mirrors for those of you who wanted to see, um, you can see they use these columns of glass and then they have a top, a uh, top plate and a bottom plate, and then they grind out the top plate and it allows the, the mirror obviously to be cooler or cools faster because the airflow through it. Um, it's probably fairly rigid, like a real thick, mirror is but um it is a but that's their way of making i don't even know how big he can go i think 60 inch is the biggest maybe he can go bigger I, now so. i think he's gotten bigger i think he's got a few for uh some satellites in australia that are larger so he's he's pretty incredible man he's very talented yeah so if you want to know more about uh these go to optics fulham um there's their website right there. You can learn all about that. Maybe one day we'll have them on. It'd be kind of interesting to talk to them. So, um, but that's not today. Um, so what are your thoughts having made a 36? Cause I've, I've talked to a couple other opticians, um, like the one who did my 28. Um, I've, I've talked to Dave Kriege of obsession. I mean, he's not an optician, but he's a telescope maker. And a lot of people, when you bring up a telescope that size, basically shut down and say, I did it and I'm not doing it again. Um, <laughs> what, what was your thought on, uh, hand? cause if you haven't seen it, it's one thing to see a 20 inch dob. It's like, wow, that's a really big telescope. And that's another thing to see a 30 inch dob. It's like, that's a really big telescope. 36 and up is a whole, everything about it is another level. Um, as someone who's made one, uh, what are your thoughts on dealing with something of that caliber? Well, um, to start with, if I could just make 36s and above for the rest of my life, I would probably do it. I found it to be extremely fun, very challenging. You know, keep in mind when we build these telescopes, we're not building them out of sheet plywood. Our telescopes are made out of actual real lumber. So we take the rough wood, I say we, me, and sometimes a helper, um, and we'll plane it down to thickness and, you know, do all the joinery. You know, when you get anything really over 20, you know, you have to really start thinking about, um, you know, the science behind wood and, uh, you know, which way to orient the grain and what type of wood to use. Um, you know, the rocker box, for instance, on these bigger telescopes, I think the reason that our 36 performed extremely well, better than I thought it would, um, you know, the posts on the rocker box 
are what's carrying the entire load of the, the weight of the telescope. We use hardwood lumber and orient the grain vertically. So just like it's in compression. So by keeping them short and keeping them really thick and chubby, those, uh, those posts absorb all that energy and it translates to, you know, no vibration at the eyepiece. And, and uh, so anyway, it's, uh, I would do it, you know, every day. It does take a little bit longer um, as far as man hours go. Um, it's, it's, it's fun. I, I love it. I, I would do big ones all day if I could. But, you know, the market's very, very small for yeah. people who want to scope that big. You really ought to know what you're you're doing. Having done the 28 now, and it's an F3.3, so it's it's short and stubby and it does a nice job, but I don't know I that I'd really want to deal with anything bigger. It'd have to have a home, like a permanent home at that point. Because right. it's, and your 36, um, your customer who has the 36, it, it doesn't go anywhere. It's it's in an observatory, but um, they're, they are a, when you see three feet of glass it is like holy crap that is a lot of something something right there so um but yeah it's it's that actually brings up uh something i was going to ask you earlier and something that i learned with my 28 inch was and it's it's something that i don't think a lot of people think about because most people especially our clientele at skywatcher any mass produced you know you call up your telescope dealer you go to amazon or whoever and you just be i'm gonna order my blah 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 and it shows up hopefully um in a couple weeks or maybe it's a few months and you just know what you're gonna get and plop there it is in a box um for you and these custom scopes uh it you have to be very considerate of the amount of time it takes to make one of these because there's not another sample to compare it to is that something that you find from people who might be coming to you from a mass production standpoint is a kind of a learning curve is you're basically commissioning a telescope at this point. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we, 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 I guess you could say lose a lot of business in that initial exchange when we tell them how long it's going to take to build the scope. Um, but you know, I, things have changed for me as a business and with as many telescopes as we have on order, um, I take it far less personally. It's it's nine to twelve months whenever somebody places an initial order, and uh, I don't know if Skywatcher experienced this, but here recently we've had these shipping issues, and uh, it's been an absolute nightmare. I mean, some of the, you know, let's say uh, you know from our focusers to our spiders, little components that we purchase that we don't actually build here. Um, we're relying on those vendors to get their parts in. And of course the shipping issues are affecting them. So we've actually had a few telescopes go over the 12 month, uh, you know, cap that I like to put on it. Um, things look like they're getting back to normal now. So that's very exciting, but, uh, it is, it's a learning curve. And, uh, you know, I, I will say that, uh, I, I absolutely love my customers and I have the most patient people in the entire world. I mean, the people who have purchased a scope from me in the past and are waiting for their telescopes to be built now, you know, nine times out of 10, there's never a complaint, um, even if we slightly go over. So uh, 
it, it is a learning curve. Um, certainly if you're used to, you know, in the world of Amazon and in the world of, you know, being able to get things almost immediately when you purchase, you know, you are commissioning someone to make this telescope. But, you know, another way to look at it is it's going to be unique. It's going to be yours. And uh, hopefully whenever you're buying one of these, it's possibly the last instrument you need to buy as far as your aperture fever goes. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. It's, those are lifetime scopes at that point. And I, you don't see them pop up on the used market. Usually if they are, it's, I just can't handle it anymore is the only real reason they're, they're handing that over. But um, right. yeah, that's, if you are thinking about doing a large job, there's a lot of thought. We have a whole episode that I'll break down my 28 this coming month. We're going to go through that whole process, but there's a lot of things to consider when you're thinking about doing a scope like this. And um, another thing, as far as the lead time goes, you have your lead time, but then you have the optician's lead time too. So basically, you know, once you talk to Ryan, there's the assumption that your optic is already either on its way or nearly finished at that point. And I don't even know what lead times are for a lot of opticians. I get, it also depends on the size of the mirror that you want. So, mm -hmm. Um, is there a telescope out of all the ones that you made? Um, uh, let me see the question uh, of all the telescopes that you've made. Are there any personal favorites? And if so, why? <laughs> um, oh gosh. I'm sure each one is kind of like a little kid to you where it's like you watch it, it really grow is. up and then it goes out the door. So, you know, a favorite would obviously have been the 36 because that was very unique. Uh, that was the, the one that, uh, you know, the largest I had ever made. Um, outside of that, every one of them is a, such a bad answer. Every single one of them are my favorite at some point in time. I mean, it drives my wife crazy. I will say, oh, my gosh, you have to come look at this finished wood. I, I have never seen wood like this. I have never seen a, a, a wood more beautiful. And she's like, you say that every single time. Do you just love every wood in the world? It turns out I do. So uh, so at some point in time, your telescope will be my favorite telescope. That's that's just the way it works. I'm sitting right next to a 12 and a half I'm about to ship. And it's the first time that we actually use these dominant uh, contrasting features. And gosh, when I, when I finished, I was just like, wow, I love that maple and mahogany. That's so pretty. So, uh, so yeah, other than the 36, nothing really stands out as, wow, that was just absolutely my favorite telescope ever. They all come through this, uh, natural process where when they're near complete and I'm testing them, I'm like, wow, this might be my favorite telescope in history. Mm -hmm. And then I move on to the next and, uh, the same thing happens. Uh, there is a question, and since we're on the topic, what hardwoods do you use? I, um, you know, if, if I'm just being completely transparent, the way I make my money, the way I'm able to be profitable as a business is when I buy my product, really. Um, you know, if I can buy my stuff wisely, I can, I can turn a slight profit because we operate on very, very narrow margins um, because, as you know, optics and everything is so expensive. So... I've got several thousand board feet of lumber that I have accumulated. So behind my shop is stickered, air-dried, thousands of board feet of lumber. And what we tend to have in stock at all times are white oak, um, white oak, black cherry, walnut, 
um, sassafras, American elm, birch, and uh, maple, typically ambrosia maple, which is kind of a figured maple. Now, at times, I'll have mahogany. Um, unfortunately, we have ran out of mahogany because it was uh, so popular. And of course, mahogany is on the uh, endangered species list. So it's nothing that can be milled and uh, bought new right now. You're kind of dealing with what's on the market. So uh, whatever wood we have in stock, whenever a customer sends the email, we'll let them know. I'll kind of list off everything they can choose from at that time. So we've sold by far um, the, the most used wood that I have is walnut. Walnut is the most popular wood. And that's interesting because it's also now very popular in China. It's one of our most exported hardwoods, walnut is. And the price, as you, if anybody watches lumber pricing, um, there's no way that I could go buy lumber from a lumber yard and build a telescope at the current cost that everything is. Um, I'm, I'm kind of relegated to what I have. And I've probably got enough at the pace I'm going now to last at least another 10, 10 years. Oh, wow. So, so between now and then, I will certainly buy more lumber. When I have the opportunity, I look for estate sales. Um, and, you know, I've got quite a bit of space here so I can go pick up trailer loads of wood whenever necessary. So that's, that's really the way I buy it. If I were just to buy it by the board foot and kind of piecemeal it together, I, I, I couldn't uh, run the business at least the way I do now. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Uh, there is a scope someone mentioned that you built a handicap accessible Springsonian for Copernic Observatory. I didn't know if you could explain that one. I think I've seen yeah. a picture of it, but um, I, it's an interesting scope. <clears throat> yeah, that was that was cool. That was a really fun build. Um, the Copernic Observatory is right outside Binghamton, New York. Um, when we first went into business, we were located in upstate New York, just north of Syracuse. And uh, I had a lot of friends down there at Copernic. And, uh, you know, they do a lot of public outreach. And one of the things they had a grant for was a uh, handicap accessible uh, telescope, uh, wheelchair accessible rather. So, so they asked me if I could do something like that. And uh, we came together and, and built that. So the idea is, you know, a Springsonian, it's, it's nothing, you know, unique. It's been out for a long time. I don't know who, who developed it first, but on any type of Newtonian, that's a Dobsonian tile, style telescope, the eyepiece is obviously going to be at one height when you're at the zenith and another height when you're at the horizon. With the Springsonian, the focuser is located at the center of rotation. So as you rotate that telescope, the focuser doesn't move. So if you're sitting in a wheelchair and you go up to the telescope, it's right there. Um, it never moves. So it's extremely convenient. You know, there, there were some downsides to the telescope. Turned out to be like the heaviest 12-inch telescope I've ever made um, because you have to balance, you know, compensate for that primary mirror. Your focuser's in the middle. So now you have to put a bunch of weight up top. Um, I would say putting it together isn't the easiest feat in the world compared to our other telescopes. It probably takes about 10, 15 minutes to get up. Um, and then, of course, moving it isn't the easiest. But as far as when it's set up and it's, it's being used, it's a pretty, pretty cool scope. It's a, it's a neat size. Is it a standard daub or how does the optical path work? Yeah, so it's just a standard uh, Newtonian, nothing nothing folded or anything like that. I, I'm sure there are some ideas that some amateur telescope makers have that could 
you know, go much further than I went. But yeah, this was a 12 inch F4, which was a, a great size to get that eyepiece height at, you know, perfect when you're seated, seating. And uh, yeah, it's just oh, a standard. Here's a picture. I think I understand how it works. So yeah, there's the the tube and the focuser stays put. And then you have the truss system, which has basically a counterweight ring to make sure the focuser stays put. So right interesting you know another another kind of hidden kind of cool thing about that when you think about it you know right now we're limited to about three and a half pounds on the bigger scopes as far as eyepieces and accessories before you have to start worrying about counterweights um with that springsonian you could put 50 pounds right there in the middle and it wouldn't mm -hmm. do anything so uh so that's one thing to think about but that's the only one we ever did um, i've never been asked to do another and uh that was it so they've got a very unique scope there well you've got the the layout for it at least figured out so first want right. to do a you know 16 spring sony and there you go so make f3 the way f to go yeah. f3 16 um i guess now we're getting a bunch of questions so now we'll just jump right into the qa session and if i've got something we'll throw it in there um how many telescopes do you complete in a year on average uh the majority of our telescopes have really been built in the last three and a half years when we went to solid wood. So, uh, you know, before I made a plywood telescope and finished it the best I could. But uh, when we went to solid wood, that's when I had to focus all my energy on new moon telescopes. And now, you know, 80 hours a week is a short week for me. So it's, mm. uh, it's nonstop. But anywhere from 30 to 40 a year is about the average right now. Um, this year might be a little bit more based on how busy we've been in the previous gosh in the previous 30 days but uh but yeah 30 to 40 a year that's pretty impressive um do you so being that some people out there like myself have project are you you have sold components before are you still selling mirror cells and bearings or is that something that due to how busy you are it's mostly going to your scopes yeah, we still, uh, I, I don't sell bearings anymore, um, but I do sell mirror cells. Um, unfortunately, they have to wait a little bit longer than they used to have on the completed mirror cell. But yeah, I still sell mirror cells. And uh, let's think what other component. Um, gosh, that might be it right now. Uh, we used to sell the collapsible truss system. But uh, again, we're so busy. I really need those pieces. Yeah. I'm always worried that, you know, I'm going to have a set for a customer and it goes out to someone just buying that. But uh, really mirror cells is the main thing we sell right now. So uh, not to keep going back to my 28 and shoving it in people's faces, um, but I have used a lot of different big dobs and we've have our Skywatcher dobs and stuff like that. But the mirror cell that whole my 28 it's 84 pounds of pyrex glass um it's four inches thick because and it's cellular um and ryan did my mirror cell it was going to be aluminum but i think you made it out of steel because of the way it needed to be held um that thing holds collimation so remarkably well it's insane because i put that thing in a trailer and i lug it around and it's f33 and of course you being a, a also an F33 owner, the first thing people go, they're like, collimation is so difficult with that. It's it's first off, it's not. Um, but your mirror cell holds 
collimation, even from location to location, it's usually like a couple tweaks and that's it. So I'm really impressed by how that thing, and it's nothing, not knocking it. There's nothing unique, I would say, about, it's a mirror cell, it's a, but it's really well executed. So I'm sure that's how your other scopes are, but I was, I've been impressed that several times it's been out so far that it's just repeatable. So thank you. Thanks for saying so. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Are any of your telescopes go to or push to designs? Yes. Um, I would say probably about 20% of the people that purchase a telescope will purchase, um, at least the, uh, push to components and then, uh, maybe 10% purchase full go to, uh, we've always used servo cat in the past. Um, I'm sure everybody has seen that Gary ha is retiring. And uh, servo cat will will be no more, but uh, we do have something already in the works, and it's almost completed. So if someone buys a telescope right now, they can get go to for the same cost as servo cat. It's going to be a different unit, um, but uh, we can't really release much more information than that right now. The as far as the push to goes, here would be my huge plug for Nexus and uh, Surge down there in Australia. There is. It's just incredible. I can't say enough about his execution and uh, how how well his his components work. So uh, we use Nexus for that. I typically do 40k encoders, um, which is plenty. I mean, I've seen that people are doing 132k and everything at this point. Maybe we will in the future, but uh, 40k is plenty. You can get pretty accurate at that. We had a Nexus system on one of our jobs. That's kind of the cool thing about if you if you're looking okay the nexus digital setting circle system is really impressive if if you have like they have like kits for almost any dob you want mm -hmm. um and they they have them for Skywatcher dobs if you have a manual one um but it's a really well done system it's got a ton of you can expand the memory on it it's got wi-fi on board so you can sync it up to the um sky safari we had a gentleman at Grand Canyon Star Party before the pandemic, so this would be 2019. He brought a 42-inch daub out. It was huge. Um, <laughs> but he had the Nexus encoders on there, and he didn't even have to climb up the ladder. He would just watch the crosshairs on the iPad, and you would see the drift, and he knew when it was getting there and just go, boop, from the ground, and you knew it was in there. So I'm glad you have experience with the Nexus as well because I've been really impressed with the Nexus, and I've talked to Surge before it. A neef and stuff like that but yes um and i know someone was asking um on ryan systems it's a dob so it's an altaz so the way go to works is there's normally like a cable that goes to pull the uh, tube essentially up and down then there's left and right movements from the other motor but it does have to be paired with an electronic you know like argo navis or something like that you were saying to have the the brain that tells it where to go correct and it, i'm assuming like other dob manufacturers um that's a choice when you call up ryan it's like i want a b c and d um on my telescope one of those things would be okay i, I you can add the go-to to it if you wanted to correct yes that is absolutely correct for a marginal fee so just a just a just a few dollars yeah just, just a few dollars um 
Is there anything that you've wanted to do that you haven't done yet as far as scopes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I want to make a 48 inch telescope. If anybody out there is watching, please uh, call me. I, I just really want to do it. Um, we can sell a few houses and purchase the optics and, and just go from there. But uh, yeah, bigger scopes. I want to make a lot of bigger scopes. Um, you know, I've, I've had like these weird little goals in the past. Like I think it would be cool to partner with a, uh, a mass production company and have like a high end, something that I could make repeatable at a fairly rapid rate and use less expensive optics. Like with me, you know, it's not like, I, I, I'm not like snooty and I, I want this exclusive club of people owning NMTs. Quite frankly, it's the opposite. I love building solid wood telescopes. I know, you know, how much money goes into making them. If I could drive the cost of the optics down and, you know, put a less expensive optic and, and get more telescopes out there, that would be awesome to me. Like I want more people uh, able to use a scope like this. So I, I think that would be cool. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's really the two main things I want to do. I, I kind of want to use different materials in different places. I, I'm never going to go away from solid wood. Um, there's so many advantages, especially with the base itself when it comes to, you know, a, a really dense hardwood. But uh, I've really enjoyed working with carbon fiber lately. Um, I've got some plans with uh, carbon fiber, at least on the top in the future, doing some foam core stuff. Uh, anything to make the telescope lighter and easier to get out of the house. Uh, the thing that really inspired me to build bigger telescopes was watching um, a guy at a star party who was an older gentleman trying to put his upper tube on a 20 inch f5 in the middle of the night and i was just like oh my gosh this guy's gonna fall like I, I was standing at the bottom of the ladder just horrified all night so uh you know certainly when i started the the average age of the dob user was you know it was up there they i would say it was in their 60s but that has really gone down i'm selling to more and more younger people um 20s and 30s so uh you know and they have a very different view of what a telescope should be so uh getting the telescopes in more people's hands whether that is by able to you know use a less expensive optic in the future that's that's one goal and then you know playing with materials and constantly evolving the design of the telescope so so those are the main goals um being a large company with a massive optical capability if you could do a mass produced optic in one of your structures. Is there a size and speed that you would prefer? Yeah, probably 12 and a half inch F 4.5 or a 16 inch F four. Those would probably be the two sizes that, uh, the F four, you know, is obviously going to be a little bit more difficult because the cost goes up even with imported optics with the faster focal ratios. But, uh, those are the two sizes that are, you know, just kind of manageable by anyone of any age. And uh, they could be made in such a way that they were a bit more repeatable if we knew the exact size of the glass and the focal ratio was going to be the same every time. So those would probably be the two sizes that uh, I, I think would work. Maybe we'll have to have a conversation after this. <laughs> <So>. There you go. <laughs> um, 
you got if anybody has any questions right now now's the time to throw it in we're about uh finished with uh today's episode um oh here's another one um are there any star parties that you'd recommend people go to i know you're on the east coast so it's a little different yeah. but, um which ones would you recommend people go to that you've been to Okay, first I would say, if there's a star party near you, go. It's an experience that I don't think you'll ever forget if you haven't been. If you have been, um, probably my favorites. I'm probably going to upset somebody. Okitex was unbelievable. I've never, to this day, seen skies that have equaled those skies so many nights in a row. So I can't say enough about Okitex. Um, there's one near me, Stanton River Star Party. It's fantastic. Um, they've got the best food. So if you're a food person, you like to eat all night at three in the morning, their cafe is open. So Stanton River Star Party, um, Black Forest, Cherry Springs. Those are two obvious ones if you're an East Coast person. Yeah, I've never been to any of the ones in California. I would really like to get over there and go because I've heard great things about them. But yeah, from my perspective, uh, Black Forest, Cherry Springs, Okitex, and Stanton River have been the... Uh, there used to be one called the East Coast Star Party right here on the Outer Banks uh, on the Atlantic, but I they they had to close down after thirty something years, mm-hmm. um, so that's that's no more. But yeah, those other four are the ones I would uh, recommend from my you know personal knowledge. That would be one thing that if you are even considering you know something in the sixteen inch plus class, and you haven't especially if you're looking at something 20 inch or bigger and you're just like, I want one of those. You need to go to a star party first and talk to people and see one of those in person. Cause it's, you'll buy it and then it shows up likely on a pallet and you're going to wonder what you got yourself into. But um, <laughs> star parties are at least for me, that's where I got my, I'm sure you were as well, Ryan. That's where you kind of get the inspiration for. I want to go bigger because you've seen, you get to see it in person and be like that was cool but i'd rather not deal with it or no i i need to have this as soon as humanly possible so absolutely uh, that's the beautiful thing about stuff and you know just the camaraderie and meeting people too that's the awesome things um but that's where the big scopes come out to play anyway is the star parties and that's a good place to go actually talk to an owner and say what's cool do i want f5 do i want faster and that's another thing real quick, again, being that we both have F3.3s and there's, oh, I still think, which is still weird, there's there's a lot of bad information that still floats around with these fast mirror telescopes. Um, and I do see that they're starting to show up more at star parties, probably thankfully to you being some of that, but um, people shouldn't be afraid of those faster optics because they, they really do throw down a nice image like anything else with you know the sips and the paracore twos now out there yeah i think the paracore two has probably been the most important uh advancement for amateur astronomy when it comes to visual yep there i'm a teleview dealer by the way that's 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 one accessory we do sell we're teleview dealers um but uh the paracore two is phenomenal i mean you throw that thing in an f3.3 if you're collimated you will not distinguish. Um, eh, well, I wouldn't say that. The view is incredible. It's uh, it, it's it's well worth the investment. And it's like Al Nagler says, 
field of view, field of view, field of view. Your 20 inch F 3.3 compared to like a 20 inch F five, the field of view is triple. And I mean, it, you, you can always get the magnification by using power mates or bar lows, um, but you can't get that same field of view with a slower focal ratio. So uh, I, I can't recommend the fast telescopes enough. F3.3 is what I have, and I love it. I wouldn't change it ever. You can get the entire Pleiades in that, can't you? You sure can. You sure yeah, can. There you go. I'm going to look at the Pleiades in my 4-inch telescope. Will you enjoy that while I look at the Pleiades in my 20-inch telescope? Right. There's diffraction spikes off of every star and all kinds of stuff. So, oh, did we lose Ryan? Oh, did I lose there you? we go. Oh, there we go. Um, well, cool. Uh, I, that might have been an indication that it's about time anyway. But <laughs> um, anyway, uh, well, Ryan, thank you so much for hanging out with us. It was it was nice to see you again. It's been a while, um, but hopefully we'll be able to. You know, we need to get out to some of those East Coast star parties and see how that or come out to Texas star party. We'll go out there sometime. Um, there you go. But uh, if you guys want to know more about new moon telescopes, uh, we'll put that down in the the link uh, or the link, the description below or, or just go to newmoontelescopes.com. Um, talk to Ryan. Go spend a bunch of money over there. He'll make you something awesome and cool. Just be patient, but you'll get it. Um, stars aren't going anywhere. Um but uh, thanks a lot, Ryan. Um, have a great weekend, and I look forward to seeing more awesome scopes from you. Thank you, Kevin. It's always good to see you, man. Call me anytime. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, thanks very much. We'll see you guys next week for the, I don't know, what's going on next week. Next week, we're talking about what's up in the nighttime sky um, for April. And then we have our What's Up Webcast-a-thon Extreme on April 8th. Uh, and we have a really special episode on April 15th. Um, so lots going on in April. Um, so thanks very much, guys. Have a great weekend. And Ryan, we will see you soon. Thanks, Kevin. All right. See you soon. All right. Bye.